Episode 10, a conversation with Chris Coos. My next guest, partially because his equivalent in Bloomington isn't seeking re-election, is arguably the most polarizing figure in the Bloomington normal spring election. Normal Mayor Chris Coos has been in office since his appointment in 2003. Mayor Coos is largely responsible for the progress made in this town since that time. During this conversation, Mayor Coos and I talk about that progress in detail, and we talk more about his strategy for continuing that progress if re-elected on April 6th. All right, and we are live. Welcome to the Keep Your Day Job podcast. We have another special election edition today, and today we are welcoming current Town of Normal Mayor Chris Coos to the podcast. Uh, so hello, Mr. Coos. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself before we get started? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to, to talk to people and, and let them know what I think and, and, and you know, hopefully do a little education on what's going on in the community. Uh, so yeah, I'm ready to go. Let's get to her. Absolutely. We are definitely here to educate the community, hopefully engage some more folks to vote. Um, and get people excited about this April election. So let's get started with um, where you got started, um, becoming mayor in 2003. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the handoff from the previous mayor to yourself and, and how you found yourself in that position? Sure, be happy to. So I, I'm a person who's, uh, I, I guess you'd call me a serial volunteer. I always believe that you have to give back to your community, your, the community you live in. And my, my mantra has always been, you don't just live in great communities, you help to build great communities. So I've been a volunteer for a long time. And in 1992, Kent Carricker tried to get me to run for council. And I had just opened off and running uh, the business uh, partnered with uh, Vitesse Cycle Shop, my other business. And I told him, I can't really do it right now. My plate's full. I've got a brand new business, uh, so I'm not interested. And he got me to run again in 97, or asked me to run again in 97, which I did. And I was elected to the council. Uh, so two years later, uh, uh, Mayor Carricker was having some health issues, some heart issues. Um, and he said, my doctor told me you, you need to get a different job because this one's not good for you. And so he took that, took that to heart, no pun intended, um, and um, decided that he was going to step down. Uh, and when he did, uh, the process would be for the council to decide who would be the, uh, the new mayor, and it would come from the council. And so after some discussion and deliberation, uh, the council chose me to be the mayor. And, and as we talked about a little bit before the podcast, just to kind of squash any sort of controversy, um, this appointment was agreed and decided upon by the board. Um, this wasn't something that was just kind of unilaterally decided, correct? Exactly. Um, by virtue of the fact that Mayor Carricker resigned, he really had no authority uh, with the council any longer. So it was totally a council decision. Excellent. Excellent. So as we flash forward nearly 20 years later, um, here we are again. What are you excited about in this campaign? What keeps you running? I, I, I really care deeply about this community. And you know, I've, I've invested a lot of hard work and dedication to the community. And I feel like I've got more to give. I really see some opportunities for us going forward in the community. 
And I think uh, given uh, the tenuous world we're living in right now, I think my experience uh, is valuable to the city and uh, to the town. And I'm, I'm willing to do that one more time. Yeah. yeah, and to piggyback on um, the experience you've had here, uh, I was a student at ISU when you became mayor. Um, and at that point, we were all as students kind of looking around Uptown Normal and wondering what was going to happen with this place. I moved back into town around 2010, and it was a completely different city, uh, and it's <laughs> continued to grow. So um, I, I want to just say thank you. I've always been very pleased with the work that's happened in Uptown Normal. So um, can I ask, though, so... Is there a city, this was something I asked uh, Mr. Chiritilli, um, is there a city you emulate or inspired by when you think of the town of Normal? Uh, there's a lot of small towns like Louisville and Charlotte and even Asheville, North Carolina that are kind of popping up with their own distinct flavor. And we're like that in some ways, but we're also very unique. Well, we spent a lot of time looking at cities, um, particularly university communities. When we were starting to do the Uptown Plan, <clears throat> We, uh, we did trips to Gainesville, Florida. We did trips to Tempe, Arizona, New Holland, Michigan, uh, uh, Miami, Ohio, places like that that, that had, had, had started to do some of these things. And we wanted to see what that looked like and what that felt like and, and talk to them about how they got where they were going. Uh, it was very, very valuable. Uh, so cities that I think... Um, that we closely align with are usually university communities like that, that have uh, a progressive attitude and, and really have developed what I call a sense of place about their community. It's a very identifiable sense of place. And I think we've, we've established that in normal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and can I drill down into the term progressive a little bit? Because it's been thrown around and thrown under every bus in this community. Um, so what does it mean to be progressive in 2021? I think, uh, to me, progressive means to have an optimistic outlook for your community and, and the future of your community. And uh, it, it's not a political term, in my opinion. It's, it's, uh, it's being a booster for your community, working with the, the business sector, education, and labor. Uh, to make it a better place to live for everyone. And mm -hmm. to me, that's progressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that segues really great into some of the questions I had uh, about the current dynamics we've got going on. So um, speaking of being progressive and helping people get engaged, uh, can you talk about the current status of, uh, of public comment at board meetings? So I know we've got uh, a comment only relinquished to uh, topics that are on the agenda as well as um, a, a limit of 45 days for people to have to wait before they can comment again. Is that correct? Uh, partially correct. Um, and, and we've changed it up recently. Um, we have public comment at the beginning of the meeting, which is germane to agenda items of that night because a council meeting is, a, is a, not a public hearing, it is a business meeting. Uh, we did uh, a couple of years ago have a 45 uh, day delay, but we got rid of that. Um, um, we, we were told that that probably uh, didn't meet Open Meetings Act in the state of Illinois, so we removed that. And we recently added uh, public comment at the end of the meeting where people could come in and, and talk about other issues in the community. We, uh, we do limit it to, to the town business and the town issues. Uh, we don't want to be a community bulletin board at, at, a, at a meeting like that, but if 
you know, if, if there's something that's on somebody's mind about the town that wasn't on that night's agenda, that's an opportunity to bring that up to us. Excellent. So just to clarify, comments before the meeting are um, only to items on the agenda, but comments after the meeting can be more broad? Yeah, and it's at the end of the meeting. The meeting is still in session, so it's not <clears throat> it's not out of the public record by any means. Okay, so uh, you'll have to excuse me for asking dumb questions here because oh, no, uh, no, I, no such I'm, I'm learning. I'm watching some of the council meetings. I am learning. So um, the takeaway from this is, you know, it's an election season. One of the knocks that we're hearing is a lack of transparency and not willing to get the public engaged. So if I'm a member of the public who's listening to this podcast and I have an opinion to share, um, how should I do that? Well, um, you can uh, email us. You can give us a phone call. You can do public comment at a meeting. You can stop me in the grocery store when you see me and ask a question that happens all the time. Um, we're, we're very accessible. And, and we, we do wanna know what's on people's minds. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I, I wanna certainly commend that accessibility. Uh, I appreciate you answering my request for this conversation. And uh, I, I think it says a lot about where we at in the community that our elected officials will do something like this. So appreciate it. Um, you, you mentioned the, uh, the council meetings are business meetings. So one thing I have noticed over the course of the past couple of years is as uh, new members to the council get elected and the pool of ideas broadens, um, sometimes the conversation goes off the rails a little bit. Um, and I've heard you say that um, the goal is to limit conversation to either those that items are on the agenda or those decisions that can be influenced. As mayor, how do you balance all of these differing opinions? Well, I think you, you, you have to have a, a discourse and a dialogue um, because people, people have different ways of looking at things and you have to balance that. You have to understand what people want. Uh, you also have to uh, understand what a majority of the people on the council want to go with something. Mm -hmm. And um, so you make a decision based on that. And a decision is a, a vote of seven people making the decision. And mm -hmm. once that decision is made, you move on. And I'll bring up a story. There's a, uh, a council member uh, in the, or an alderman in the city of Bloomington when the Coliseum was being built. And it was a very divisive issue for it. And the, the final vote to go forward with it, this gentleman voted no. He voted against it. And when the vote was positive to go ahead with the arena project, his position was, I now have to work to make this the best project I can for the town and for the citizens or for the city and the citizens of the city. And so I think that to me is good governance where somebody said, okay, I didn't win this one, but this is a decision. I, I have to work to make that the best decision possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say one thing that I've struggled with is understanding, uh, you know, for example, I know the, the normal water main issue got brought up in the last meeting and it was kind of decided that that was an issue that was already had already been determined what we were going to do. Um, those sort of things. How, how can we as a public know what's been decided and what hasn't? What can, are there resources we should look at to keep up? Yeah, all, all this is available uh, and it, 
it just depends on your bandwidth to absorb all that information because there's a lot there. Um, but we archive every meeting. Uh, it's on our website. You can watch the videos. Uh, you can uh, pull up the uh, corresponding agenda to see what was talked about that night. And you may look at it and say, well, I'm not interested in any of that. You can move on. Um, you know, or you can ask us, or you can ask the city manager or, or the, the appropriate department head, possibly. Um, but we try to get as much information as we can. And this is going to let me segue into something here, because one of our large initiatives is Smart Cities Technology, where we can use technology um, to be more transparent, to get information categorized and available to people so they don't have to wade through encyclopedias, they can get the information that they want. And we're always trying to fine tune that process. Yeah, I'm so excited that you brought up the Smart Cities Initiative because that is something that came up on the conversation with Mr. Tiertilly. Um, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about your vision for Smart Cities because on the nose, those of us who don't know very much about it are thinking, uh, you're just going to get a bunch of, you know, electronic lights and do a bunch of computer things, right? If I'm going to be totally obtuse. So could you give me a little detail on that? Well, we're, we're still in the process of defining what that looks like, but it's, it's, uh, it is changing out the light bulbs and more efficient light bulbs. It's more efficient uh, uh, HVAC systems, if you will. It's uh, more efficient building technologies. Uh, a lot of it is data analytics, where we're, we're taking a harder look at the data, and there's so much data available in today's world to, to know what's meaningful and, and reflective of what we're trying to accomplish as a community. And I think the data analytics piece of it is probably going to be the most important piece. Um, and again, it's, you know, we make decisions um, based on what we know. And so our ability to know more of it in a, in a digestible manner, I hope I'm not talking too broadly here, but um, the ability to, to be able to digest it and, and, and get meaningful information instead of anecdotal information really helps, helps the city at every level to make uh, smart decisions. It also you know, monitoring sewer flows, monitoring water flows and water quality. Smart cities touches everything you do in, 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 in a governmental system, much as it does, you know, smart technologies where you work at State Farm. It, it touches every, every aspect of, of, your, of your work and uh, designed to make you more efficient and, and easier to get the job done. Yeah. So smart technologies is not just a novel way for us to be the electric city town or the electric car town. Uh, you know, there's there's real improvements that can happen about the flow of energy, information and data across our community. This can help okay. us as as community members, as well as uh, council members and potential mayor um, to make decisions and to provide additional transparency if this information is all in a central source. Absolutely. You you got it. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit more about Rivian. Um, one of the things I'm most interested in about your position is this continuous juggling of priorities. And if we've learned anything over the course of this pandemic, it's that as soon as you think you got it, it's gone. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the water line out to 
uh, Rivian was something that became a priority recently. Uh, well, at least it came on my radar recently. Um, and, and what I've heard is that, you know, there's a bit of a juggling between putting new pipes out there versus replacing water mains or fixing, uh, you know, fixing holes in the street. From an infrastructure perspective, how are you continuously prioritizing your backlog of things to do? Well, let's talk about the Rivian water situation. First off, people think we're extending a water main to serve Rivian. That is not the case. Uh, Rivian is served by the city of Bloomington and they're, they're satisfied with the service that they're getting. <clears throat> that came out of the MetroZone agreement from years ago where we partnered on, on that uh, area of land uh, as two cities. Um, and if you've been around, you've been around long enough to know that the uh, city of Bloomington did not want to go forward with that agreement. So that agreement right. lapsed. <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, what we're looking at is what the future development of that area is. And um, we have some water main out there, but it, if uh, um, newer companies come, which we think they will, a lot of them are probably gonna be associated with Rivian, plus mm -hmm. some of the expansions that Rivian is doing. They're doing an incredible amount of expansion out there. We wanna be, uh, we want to be ready for that, uh, that economic expansion to, to happen. We don't want to be reactive to it. In other words, when, when a company comes in and says, I think I'm ready to build here, we're going to say, well, you've got, you've got water and sewer and power already there. So you, yeah. you don't have to wait for that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and as I've been thinking about Rivian and the impact Rivian may have, I've been thinking a lot about the types of jobs that may be coming into the community. But based on your comment, um, are, are you assuming that area out there is going to continue to be commercial or will there be some additional residential growth out there? We don't see that particular area. There may be areas near there um, designed for residential, but we see that as a totally commercial manufacturing area. That's, that's what it's... Uh, zoned for currently and and it seems to be the highest and best use okay excellent excellent so any sort of conversation that we have about um, managing priorities always lends itself to the bottom line which is dollars so um if we can shift focus to finances i was hoping you could clarify um your position on not paying down uh the town's debt uh right i think the argument against the the, the position you've taken is we had no debt when he became mayor. Now we're in such debt. We're not paying anything down. The world's going to end. Um, so specifically, the $1.8 million um, bond that came up most recently, could you talk a little bit about the town's perspective in uh, not paying that? Sure. Um, so uh, at the risk of getting too terribly wonky here in the conversation. Don't worry, I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Um, our, our position is, first off, this, these bonds were issued to stimulate growth in the community. And um, we issued about $95 million worth of bonds. $14 million of that went to critical infrastructure in and around the uptown area. Uh, we knew that area was gonna redevelop and water mains and sewers in that area were nearing 100 years old. And we decided it's better to fix that now and get that done instead of redoing everything and then digging it all up piecemeal to replace that infrastructure. Right. Uh, but those bonds generated about $172 million of private investment, 
private dollars. So it was an economic development tool. And it was, you know, it's a public-private partnership with the private sector to, to improve our community. And it's been a huge success, a huge success. Uh, in terms of um, the, the 1.8 million, uh, we actually are gonna refinance that. And basically we get a lower rate and then we will pay off another bond it's, I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces in this. It's really, really hard to talk about, but it's part of an effective cash management program that we've mm -hmm. developed to handle our bonded debt. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, our budget is about $132 million this year. And our debt obligation this year is about $5 million. You know, and those are big numbers for, for people to digest. But I always say, take three zeros off of that at each end. So let's talk $132,000. Your family has $132,000 income. People that say that's too much debt, they're saying, well, you can't afford $5,000 a year debt management on $132,000 a year salary. It's ridiculous. Um, mm -hmm. We have the highest credit rating you can get uh, for a municipality. Um, uh, we're, we're congratulated for uh, our, our cash management. We're congratulated for our, <clears throat> our liquidity, the liquidity we have as a unit of government. And we're congratulated on, uh, um, I'd say, long-term strategic policy. Um, for a, for a, a rating agency to give you a AAA bond rating or Moody's AA plus, or AA1, I'm sorry. Um, you know, we're in the three to 4% uh, of municipalities in the United States that have a kind of rating. So uh, we're in very good shape financially. Do we have issues going forward? Of course, we do. in a pandemic world, you know, we've had some hits, but our ability to manage those and address them is recognized as sound fiscal policy. Yeah, yeah. And I think this pandemic has, um has probably changed the way everyone looks at their finances. If we could talk a little bit about how the town has reacted to COVID, um, what are we learning going forward? Because I don't want to have the conversation about Joe Station House right now. I want to know what the <laughs> lessons learned are that are going to prepare us for if this is an inevitable second happening in the future. Um, but it feels like something that is we have to worry about. It does. And, and, you know, if you look back in history, um, at pandemics throughout history, um, there's always a, a, a very divisive population on what to do during those pandemics. Kind of what's happening now, you know, don't wear a mask, don't get a, vaccine, a vaccination, wear a mask, close the restaurants. Uh, in the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, they were having these very same arguments back and forth. So um, people have different perspectives. But I think at the end of the day, everybody wants us to get through this in a, in a positive way. So it, it makes the decision making a little more difficult. Um, back to, you know, transparency and information, as much information as we can get to people uh, about what's going on currently, the better. And, and that was the reason I uh, formed the mayor's task force on on uh, COVID-19, we, uh, we brought a lot of people to the table from 
uh, education, medicine, faith-based uh, community, labor, uh, small business, uh, just a whole group of medical people, a whole group of people to have a community conversation about how we approach COVID in our community and what, what we do to get out of this. And it was, uh, it was very helpful. Yeah. How did you manage having the university? Um, but it was such a strong presence in the community and it looked like the numbers, again, as an un, unknowing citizen, I looked at the numbers spike up when ISU came back. I, you know, I went down that pessimistic rabbit hole, rabbit trail of thinking, well, you know, the kids have all paid for the apartments, they've all paid for the tuition, so they get them back on campus and then they tell them to go virtual. Um, you know, how, how do you manage that relationship with the university through something like this? Uh, we have a great uh, relationship with the university and have had for a long time. You know, I've, I've worked with three different university presidents in my career. All of them have been very pro-community and we've been very pro-university. I always say what's good for Illinois State University is good for normal and what's good for normal is good for Illinois State University. And we have a reputation of having one of the strongest town-gown relationships in the country. We've... Uh, we did a, recently a presentation at the International Town Gown Association meeting in Chicago, uh, and it was a, a joint panel from the university and town employees who, who did it, and people were astounded that we were working that well together and, and, and we were interlocked in, in our decision making for the community. So uh, to me, that's very important. That's something I'll always work for is to have that very positive, collaborative relationship with the university. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's one thing you've touched on a few times during this conversation, the partnership with the university. So as we think about additional development in Uptown Normal, what are you focusing on next? Well, I think what we're looking at is, you know, we've got the area south of the tracks that we've identified, um, possibly a new library, depending on funding. Uh, uh, and, you know, we could have a whole nother podcast about what libraries are, are becoming because a lot of people yes. say well you know you don't need all these books anymore well li libraries understand that and they're they've changed their mission uh we also in in our uh planning uh for our comprehensive plan and some of the uh, work we did on the uptown 2.0 study we found that there was a need for uh, more affordable non-student multifamily housing and so we think that's a good area for that you know, uh, people that are just out of the university, young professionals or, or, or working people that can't afford uh, some of the rents in this town. We, we feel like there's a need for that kind of housing, starter housing, if you will. So we see that as a possibility in that area. Yeah. And, and you know what? You hit my next question right on the head. And I'm glad you're thinking about this because I do feel very strongly that libraries have changed. I think that um, the role of the library in the community is changing as a way to engage people and bring people together. Um, we're not just going and thumbing through the, the Dewey Decimal System anymore. Um, right. I, I think a lot about other spaces in Uptown Normal as well. I think about kind of this young food scene that we've got here. Um, how do we balance bringing in larger businesses that will give the economy bigger boosts while also kind of nurturing some smaller businesses, right? I'm a huge fan of small craft beer scene, small food scene, and mm -hmm. I just want to see it blow up. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And it, it, it needs a lively community to, to do that in. And so 
it goes back to what I call that sense of place. You know, a lot of, of what Rivian, what brought Rivian to this community is what they saw in this community when they came here. When they first came here, they did not come here looking to buy an auto plant. They came here looking to buy equipment from a closed auto plant. Mm -hmm. And when they got here and saw what was happening in the community, uh, and they said that, they said, there's a vibe in this community that we didn't expect. And it's pretty cool. And they were pleasantly surprised by the quality of the plant. <clears throat> uh, they told a story early on that one of their major investors, they said, we need to, you know, you need to look at this, this plant normal. This is, this is the place. It's really an opportunity for us. And he said, no, Detroit, we're, we're a Michigan company and that's where it's going to be. And they convinced him to come down here. He spent a day and a half in the community and talked to people about what it was like. And he, he, he found a, a, a a group of people who were very positive about where they lived, liked the vibe in the community. And he went back and he said, yeah, we need to buy that plant. Yeah. And so that's what, that's what's going to draw larger businesses to our community. That sense of place that, you know, uh, the strength of our education system, our public safety, uh, what's going on culturally in the community, all those things are important. Uh, you know, of course, they need the infrastructure, they need the access to transportation and that. But in today's world, you know, if uh, not to cast dispersion on Gary, Indiana, but if State Farm opened an office in Gary, Indiana, and they said, hey, we need you and Gary, you might think about changing careers. That is a good point. Yeah, no. And uh, if I've learned anything over this pandemic, it's that your work environment can be anywhere. And that's something we never thought we would see. I mean, I, I always thought I would see it in my child's lifetime, but um, I, I've been blown away at the ability of businesses and corporations across the globe to just pivot and change their model so quickly. It's, it's really been impressive. Um, so talking a little bit more about business development in uptown, um, you know, again, uh, your opponent has been critical of the use of TIFs, arguing that they should be um, blanket incentives applied universally across the board. What is your perspective on the use of TIFs to incentivize business? Well, I think TIF is a very valuable tool. Uh, uh, TIF is also a tool that can be easily um, misused, and it has been, and it's given TIF a, a bad name in, in, um, in certain areas. Uh, we, we have what's considered a textbook TIF by the people that work in that, in that industry and deal with public finance, because again, we took private dollars and, and or public dollars, I'm sorry, and we leveraged it into significant uh, public investment. And, you know, people say um, we're denying the schools money. Actually, had it not been for the TIF, that $172 million of private development that I talked to you about would never have happened. And so when the TIF expires in 2026, those dollars, those property tax dollars will go to the schools and to the um, township and all the taxing bodies in the community. So um, if, you're, if your game plan is short-term, TIF's probably not for you. But if you've got a long-term outlook for your, uh, long-term vision for your community, it's a great tool. So would it be naive to say that we were using TIFs to spur economic development to ultimately grow our tax base to improve the schools over the long period? 
that's oh, that's a piece of it. I, I wouldn't okay. say that's the primary goal. You know, uh, right, the primary right. goal is overall economic development, but mm -hmm. that is part of the strategy. You know, I would I would make the argument that if we in the last twenty years had we done nothing and just let let things develop as as they would, your taxes would be higher than they are right now, mm -hmm. because you know. A friend of mine, and I, I, I don't like saying it, but uh, he said, "You, well, you've been mayor. There's been over a billion dollars of private development in the town, you know, and that that does generate uh, dollars for the tax base. Mm -hmm. You know, the properties in uptown uh, have increased in their uh, in their value three times from from the time we started." And, and again, in 2026, that benefit will flow to all the taxing bodies. Okay. okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so then thinking a little bit more about schools, um, when these tips expire, um, the school district is going to get some money. Um, are there other, are there other ways that we are helping build unit five? Yeah, I think, I think there is in terms of, um, you know, they're facing some issues. There's no question of it. Schools in Illinois are. And probably the biggest issue is the, the fact that state government has, has walked away from its role in public education and has pushed it uh, as much as they can to the local level. So in terms of broader economic development in our community, that helps the schools. Uh, so we'll, we'll step up from uh, uh, K through 12 and, and look at Heartland and Illinois State University, uh, because of Rivian coming to the community, uh, Heartland is developing new programs to train people for, for 21st century manufacturing jobs, which require mathematics skills, computing skills, robotics. They need these skills uh, to function in, in a 21st century manufacturing world. Uh, Illinois State University is talking about developing a, an electrical engineering program for the for uh, and part of it has to do with Rivian and Rivian has been an active partner with those two institutions to to accomplish that. So I think that in that sense, it, it broadens the role of education and gives them more opportunity to draw students in and just just be more viable in the community. Yeah, this isn't a question directly related to what I just asked, but um, sort of wondering as we are on the topic, in your tenure as mayor uh, and, and your time being politically active locally, has um, the relationship between public and private partnerships changed? Has it increased? I, I would say yes. Um, in, in, a, in successful communities, public-private partnerships are, are, are kind of the trend, mm -hmm. um, you know, Without getting too political, people say, "Oh, it's that progressive stuff again." It's actually the public-private partnerships came out of Republican thinking, not Democratic thinking. Um, it's it's leveraging all the assets you can for the betterment of the whole. Yeah, and, and public-private partnerships do that. You know, the public has an interest in seeing their community be better, and sometimes private needs that boost to help whether it's infrastructure or, or TIF or, or whatever. 
Right. And conversely, those private industries have a relationship with the community. They want a place that's good for their employees. As we've uh, mentioned that Gary, Indiana analogy, not to knock on Gary, um, but that's true. If a business opens up with a great model in a terrible community where there's nothing for people to do and poor schools, they're going to have trouble attracting talent. Um, so I appreciate you touching on that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'll, I'll reference that too a little bit. Uh, you know, the uh, Trailside uh, East project in, in Uptown Normal, uh, your two major tenants there, um, office tenants, AFNI and, and Farnsworth Group, the reason they're doing that is they said in their current locations and environments, it's hard to recruit young new talent. They don't want to work in uh, in an office building stuck by the side of an interstate. They, you know, they want to be able to walk out the door at the end of the day and go get that crap beer you were talking about. That's yeah. what they want. Right, right. And so my last question that I have um, is, is sort of centered around uh, the small towns mentality. And I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with that uh, by listening to Tyson's podcast, I was educated. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting. And I think there's a lot of takeaways for a city like ours. I'm a cyclist, you're a cyclist. Um, one thing that I've always thought of in the town of normal is the trail is great, but if you have to get anywhere off the trail, it's difficult. This brings us into the conversation about Connect Transit and the growth of the trail. Um, as we expand outward all the way towards Rivian, um, how are we thinking about moving people around? Well, it's part of our uh, uh, comprehensive plan. If you take a look at that, you're gonna see that talked about quite a bit. Uh, one of the things we're looking at, uh, at the request of Rivian and the fact that it needs to be done is West College Avenue. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, West College Avenue is in terrible shape and needs to be rebuilt. And it's going to be an important piece of road for Rivian's uh, success out there because there's going to be a lot of truck traffic bringing uh, materials in and out of that uh, facility. Also, uh, given, given the type of employee Rivian's hiring, you know, you, you've got employees out there that say, I want to be able to ride my bike to work. So we're going to incorporate bike lanes somehow in, in that. We're not quite sure what that looks like yet. We're just beginning to study on that. But as we uh, improve our community, uh, building in, uh, new subdivisions or whatever, we always incorporate bike trail. And Connect Transit constantly is looking at, at their ridership and, and numbers to decide with their limited uh, resources uh, where they can where they can run service that that best serves the, the their customers. Um, I, I will point out too. We've had a uh, as long as I've been mayor, we've had a uh, philosophy to keep our physical footprint tight and not mm -hmm. expand. Uh, we're anti sprawl because we know that that uh, that increases our costs and our ability to deliver services, be it police fire, picking up your garbage, plowing your street. You know, the more landmass we have, the harder, harder that becomes. So we're, we're very cognizant of not pushing out into the cornfields. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on the topic of Connect Transit, it's important to denote that public transportation is a service. And I don't, at least, and, and I, I would offer you to clean me up here. I don't believe 
we are using Connect Transit as a, as a profit vehicle. We're using it as a, as a mechanism to, to help people who need to go places get there. And then the growth in ridership will hopefully be obtained as you know we get more people who are seeing how easy it is to use and our town moves away from cars per se and more towards public transportation. It, that's, a, that's a very good way of stating it. You know, you've got, uh, you've got uh, riders who use Connect Transit because they have to, um, they can't afford an automobile, et cetera. And then you have choice riders, people that say, you know, I'd rather get on the bus. And, uh, you know, I've got 15 minutes to read my emails on my way to work or, or whatever. Uh, and, and so the, the, those are choice riders. They, they choose to do that. And we're seeing growth in choice riders, people that want, want access to public transit. You know, when we have, you know, it's 10 years ago, we were having students coming from uh, Germany, uh, university mm -hmm. students. And um, they were here for oh, a, a month uh, in a visit. And always the first thing they'd say is, where's your bus system? You know, because where they live, the, the bus system is their primary transportation. Right. Right. I think for anyone who's traveled um, across Europe and, and a lot of the major world, public transportation is uh, is vital there. I lived in mm -hmm. Rome for some time and we only rented a car to leave town. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love if our city could got that could get there because I think some of the arguments we have about bike lanes right now are overshadowed by our reliance on cars. So um, I appreciate the commitment to that. So I know you've got a lot going on today. I'm gonna wrap up with one last question. I've really enjoyed this interview. Um, my goal is to engage non-voters and young voters um, by doing these podcasts. So as we walk away from this conversation, what should young people and current non-voters get off the couch and go vote for you about? What should they be excited about in the next four years? Well, the first thing is they, they should vote for me. Thank you for recognizing that. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, it's interesting in, in terms of government, state, uh, federal, local, um, what happens locally affects your life day to day more than any other unit of government. And so being involved in that and making a voting choice in that is, is really critical if, um, to, to get what you want out of your community. It's just really, really important to be engaged. You know, and it's hard to get younger people engaged because you, you're starting careers, maybe you're still in school, you're pretty busy people. You're starting careers, you're starting families. It's, it's, hard to, it's harder to get engaged, but we want the younger population more engaged in our community. And one way they can do that is get out there and vote, understand what the issues are and vote. Yeah, yeah. I think you hit it on the head right there. We all sort of learn about politics with a national lens because there's a certain type of appeal, but the impact for change is incrementally larger at the local level. I mean, shoot, I got you on here with an email. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. right, there's something to be said for that though. And as young people are looking to, to subvert traditional mechanisms of power, I think the reality is that we've got a ton of it here in normal and we've got a ton of leverage being where we are and having the amenities we do. Um, I thank you for your time and I greatly appreciate this conversation. Great conversation, I enjoyed it as well.
For some reason, I struggled in releasing this episode. Maybe because I felt our conversation was too cordial. There weren't any of those hard-hitting moments like you see on those cable news networks. I believe there are two reasons for that. First, the people elected Mayor Coos a few times. We, well not me, are where we are today based on our actions, or lack thereof, in the voting booth. Oh, and number two, I don't want to be the type of person who crafts questions that aspire to maliciously expose a weakness in a person's idea or strategy. This approach commonly results in the type of friction between people capable of ruining a perfectly good conversation. Thanks to Mayor Coos for joining me. And don't forget, get out and vote on April 6th.